1: Good afternoon and welcome. Thursday, of course, is our day to talk about all things municipal. And I'd like to follow up on some info I heard here on this show for the first time, which I found shocking. So we're heading into peak party season with the CNE this weekend, along with Ashkenaz, TIFF next week, too many other events to mention. And even before all this, it's been really hard and or expensive to get a cab or an Uber. Now, one of the main holdups was the city's delay in rolling out driver training, which is now mandatory. And now we find out that thousands, 3,700 to be exact, of Uber drivers got a pass from a basically fraudulent online course, uh, which has since been delisted, but City officials say, hey, it's fine to keep them on the road. Is that okay? People, what do you think? The number's to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 866 740 740
0: And now, it's time to tune into the town.
1: And now, I am joined by Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of BlogTO, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hi, Hi Olivia. Olivia. Uh, Let's begin with you, Lauren. You were nodding your head, so uh, what do you think of that? I'm sure you take the odd Uber. I take quite
2: a few Ubers, yes. Um, I.
1: Oh, just, oh,
2: oh,
1: sorry. One My oh, wrong way. Okay. Sorry. There we my, go. my bad. Oh, my bad. Okay. <laughs> uh,
2: sorry. I, I do take quite a few Ubers. Yes. And um, I remember at the time after the city in late 2021 had made it mandatory for Uber drivers to take these courses to drive before they had approved any programs. There was a, a uh, like a moment in time, kind of a few months where it was... Like, really, really expensive. We were waiting like 18 minutes for an Uber that normally I would wait two minutes for downtown. And I just thought the whole thing was kind of ridiculous. Now we're learning that, you know this program they ended up approving was basically garbage anyway. So why did it take them until April of 2022 to approve a program if it was just going to be like, well, we don't care anyways, now that they know it's basically, you know, uh, Ben Spur, I think on the Toronto Star was writing about how he took it in two hours. It was just an online quiz, basically. Um, So I think that was kind of frustrating for a lot of people to understand how, if it took the city this long to vet these programs after (laughs) issuing an RFP, it took them four or five months, like, did they even vet them at all? And now they know this one is bunk, and they're like, okay, whatever. Do they care?
1: Okay. Uh, I am going to get a lot of flack for saying this, but I think that when we see problems like this at the municipal level, we have problems at every level of government, I think a lot of those people who are paid in full to do work at home – Maybe weren't doing their work because if they had been, like everything is 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 really in bad shape. So um, back to Uber, David, what do you think?
3: Well, it, it, just from what I can read and what I've uh, saw in the past little while, I mean, it seems to me on this one, the city needs to hang its head in shame. It's it's one of the one of the the, the, the important uh, functions of local government is to provide services to keep people healthy. And, and, in, and in this instance, they decided that they were going to have a way in which they were going to train drivers so that that would give aid and comfort and safety uh, to their customers. If they were going to do it, they should have done it. But the idea that somehow you can blithely say, no, we're going to put 3,700 cars in the road, even though they haven't taking, taken this course, well, that's just an admission, a really an admission of failure by the government. And, they, and And they should own up to that.
1: Well, yeah, so they, they okay, uh, they didn't figure it out, Karen. Now they figured it out. Why would they say, cool, I mean, uh, there's talk about a big lobbying effort by Uber. Um, could that possibly be the reason that these drivers are allowed to stay on the road? No, I, to be honest with you, I think it's a little bit more um,
4: practical in that, the reality of the ride-sharing program of Uber and Lyft and, and the other ones that are out there have gutted the, the traditional taxi cab industry, and there are not enough there are not enough cabs. And so, if they make it too hard for Uber, then there's not, there's not enough transportation in that fashion. Because I can tell you, just a personal anecdote, I, I can't get a cab. I was downtown leaving. I the can't Duke get a cab either. I can't get a cab. And I'm, you know, I was, for whatever my philosophical reasons opposed to Uber, because being at the city, I felt it was important that we support the cab industry. But the reality is I'm now forced to Uber because I can't get a cab.
1: Oh, and, the, and cost of, the cost of getting an Uber. I mean, the last time I was in an Uber, so it, this would be a ride I take off, and that would maybe cost 12 or $13. Well, it was 27 yeah.
2: Right. <laughs> to get and to the
1: airport. So oh, sorry. sorry, no, I just, just a final note on it. Like, Uber disrupted the taxi industry.
4: Congratulations. But now it's been completely disrupted, and the city has no control over this industry anymore. To be candid, and so we are now at the mercy of Uber to provide the service. And the, the leverage that the city had when I was a counselor to to regulate and to ensure safety in this in this taxi industry is it, gone. It's gone forever.
2: Yeah, I think I think what Karen is saying is right. Like it's the whole kind of transportation. I- industry has been handed over to uber but the problem is that uber is not in a transportation provider it is a tech company exactly. first and foremost it is an mm-hmm. app ride sharing app provider they're contracting drivers to use their app whereas the taxi industry actually i know they used to have to take a 17-day training course like they're actually professional drivers and i will say i can't get taxis anymore but if i would have the choice between a taxi and an uber Versus, like who's usually the better driver the taxi drivers of Toronto can get me to where I'm going way faster usually than an uber driver who comes they do oh. it twice a week maybe they're from Mississauga and you know I yeah it sucks to see what's happened there but I was just gonna say before I, t- I took um, an uber to the airport a couple of weeks ago I it was a hundred and fifty dollars because of surge pricing and you're like your hands are tied what are you gonna do right? okay there I'll, I'll give you a
1: name there's a company that does cabs to the airport <laughs> yeah, to and
2: oddly <laughs> it is a
1: lot cheaper to get to the airport than to get back for, yeah. from the airport yeah. where another company has a monopoly mm-hmm. um, and uh, basically I mean they have fares but they charge more it was just so a surge. I'll give you that name yeah, you no will, no please. don't do that
2: they don't do surge that would be nice because Uber does surge and it's like something that might have cost $30 is all of a sudden it's it's started.
1: not $30 yeah. it's closer to $60 but it's not 150 better
2: than 150 yes I will get that name from you I
1: uh, David, is is the genie out of the bottle on this, or uh, can the city do something about this?
3: Well, they obviously need to do something about it, or just simply say they're not going to have a training program. I mean, you, you can't just sort of assume that you're going to have a program It doesn't operate because you didn't do it, and that somehow you just let it go by. Now, I think they're going to try and fix it, and how they're going to try and fix it is begin again next year. Well, fair enough, but I, I I'm with Karen on the point that there's a, a major change in in the hail in the hail a cab business or whatever it might be called. I use by the way I don't own a car, so I use VEC all the time uh, inside the city, and if I need to go outside the city, I use Uber, and I find both of them handy. But I'm expecting uh, that that the the authorities in this case the city, the the, the city is doing its job of making sure that they when they they give license to public carriers, or uh, carriers for the public, then they they are going to assure us that they've been trained properly. If not, they don't think they should be trained, they should say so. If they think they should be trained, they should do it.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there were apparently this hub... um it was one of four that were authorized, so they took them off the list. But but again, you know, the, those drivers, I mean, it's a joke. Why should another driver take a real course if these guys got away with, you know, the 10, the, I think, a 15-minute online thing?
3: Yeah, I, and I, I, I agree with that. I don't. I think it's because the city was not serious about what it did. I think it did certain things. It jumped the old 17-day seven, course that you had to take. Because they thought they needed to, then when someone passed away or died as a consequence, they decided they were going to do something else again, but they didn't equip themselves. That's why I say the city wants to do it. They should organize themselves to do it and not and, and, and quit failing the public's uh, respons- a responsibility of the public to make sure that, they, that these things are safe for us to use.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the I guess good news is uh, the reason this is really coming to a head is that everything seems to be back in the city and people are itching to get out. Yeah, no question. And, uh, and there's just not enough cabs anymore. Uh, not no, there cab. certainly aren't. Uh, I'm, I'm interested. David, do you get a cab when you want one?
3: Yes, I do. I use Beck all the time <sighs> and I call and they're always within five to ten minutes. Always. Have you done that recently? Yes, I did the other day, and I also used Uber coming down from Georgian Bay.
2: Okay, well, you're a celebrity, though. They probably see David Crombie on the on the, dial uh, the yeah. They see me and they say, "Don't answer that." No, no,
3: no. <laughs> they call me the old guy.
1: The, okay, well, I don't know. Um, can I wonder? Maybe I could spoof my phone and we'll say David Crombie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can get a cab. <laughs> Sorry, David. No, uh, no, no. I know. I've got I, I I think
3: Beck has done a good job in re- trying to respond. To a quick changing market over the last number of years. So that's and I've used Becca. I used to use the others, but Becca survived well.
1: Yeah, I well, I don't know about well. We were talking to Christine Hubbard yesterday, and they are really short, like every everyone and everything else. Um, yeah. But they have survived. Let's put it that way. Their fleet is fair enough what cut in half or something i don't remember the exact number Uh, but you don't see the others on the road you really don't so uh, the ambassador program is no longer
4: because why would anybody drive for an ambassador car if they can just drive an uber Uber, with half the hassle and half of the regulation
1: well exactly and again you know uber did a good job of of sucking us in Mm -hmm. It, it was so cheap when it started and now um, it's not so cheap. It's actually really expensive. Every day is a surge day. Yep. Gee, yeah. You don't
3: think we could have told, we could have understood that? Uh, that's, I th- one of the, that's one of the oldest ways to get into a business you can think of. Yeah. Cut the price early, raise it later.
4: Uh, well, that's, it, that's why they disrupted, because they knew they, were, they weren't playing the short game, they were playing the long game. Now we're held hostage to Uber, quite candidly.
2: Yeah, and, and, and Uber does do a significant amount of lobbying. If you look at the lobbyist registries for any city, um, it's like they, they have a lot of power and money. So it's, it's unfortunate to see a company like that kind of taking over. But it seems like that's the reality of the world these days. It's just, you know, I wish that the city would do more to regulate and make sure they're good drivers. Because I understand the impetus for this whole driver training thing was a young man was killed in the back. Exactly. Back, right? And and this mm-hmm. happens. And you've heard horror stories about Uber rides in which young women are assaulted in the back yep. or people are, you know, hurt. Um, it's just that the city's not really taking that seriously. After watching the cab industry just get eviscerated, at this- least at least make sure the new drivers from this big company are legit, like somewhat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, big fail. And that's to city staff. Am I being harsh, saying that, you know, there were people maybe not working so hard at home? Karen? No, I, I think that's a totally fair statement. I
4: also think that the city um, doesn't know how to respond to this role that it's in, because when it was regulating the cab industry, it was pretty clear what the responsibility was for training, the 17-day course that people signed up for. Here at this online dimbi, you know, maybe you do it, maybe you don't. Um, that Uber drivers aren't getting paid to take the course. So it's just no one's really monitoring who's taking it versus who's not. And so, you know, on this one, though, I'm going to say the city's in a very difficult position because it doesn't control the number of Uber drivers that are out there because it's a tech app, right? People can sign on, sign off. At no point in time can the city say there's X number of vehicles that are available for service because they don't know. Hmm. They, they knew it before, before Uber, they knew exactly how many cars were on the road. Now they can't tell
2: you. Yeah, a company from California can tell you yeah. now that they're the ones who control it. Well, <laughs> right.
1: exactly. Yeah. Okay, moving right along here, before we get to back to some issues here in Toronto, uh, this is an amazing story in Pol- Port Colburn, where the two candidates for mayors are two brothers who haven't spoken in thirty years? Like you want to talk about sibling rivalry or family feud? I mean, uh, what do you make of that, David?
3: Well, I, I'm, I'm delighted. I'd like to chair a meeting, actually, uh, when they when, when they decide to come together to have a, have a debate. I suspect, <laughs> I suspect it'll be remote debates. Uh, that, that was my thought. No, it's very it's very interesting. I I, uh, I love them. I, I read a little bit about it, and, and uh, it seems to me that uh, the, the one per- one of the brothers who's running uh, thinks that the other guy is just not up to it. Now, if you've had brothers uh, and sisters, I assume, uh, then you know it. All, but that's all about it. Uh,
1: well, one of them has been the mayor, a first-term mayor, and then the other guy says, "Well, nobody would have run against him if I didn't, and that would be undemocratic."
3: Yeah. <laughs> I wonder where Mum is.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so he's literally just running against his brother to stop him from being mayor again. Is that- uh, I,
1: uh, I don't. This reminds. He says no, so that it will have a democratic process where he won't be acclaimed.
2: Oh, okay. It, it remind. This is this is the first time hearing about this. This is such high drama. I absolutely adore it. Anyone who says the politics is boring are boring. Please. Read, you know, read about this, but it reminds me
1: of us All I hate to be saying this, but this needs a reality show. Yeah,
2: seriously, oh,
1: no. <laughs> or like an HBO drama. It's well, no HBO. We can do it scripted, here. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, it's good <scripted> for <laughs> drama.
1: It's good for drama. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting ideas here. So uh, back to Toronto. Our race is on. Uh, no, nothing exciting yet. No, it's not going to be exciting at all. <laughs> I don't even know what day. What, what day is the election October twenty fourth? Oh, there you go. And there but go. I can tell you where you're going to be in that evening, Karen. <laughs> Here. <laughs> <That's> all right. <laughs> there, there
3: may be there may be some good close races uh, in on the uh, uh, in the various wards. It's, yeah. I haven't paid as much attention as I will over the next couple of weeks, but but I gather the early scare was that there weren't enough candidates generally that we appear to be at least enough Uh, but i think i think the debate the 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 topics for debate are very very important so i i I expect you're going to it'll heat up and people will have some clear uh clear things what they want to say and what they want to do i I would note that the mayor is already out there even though he doesn't have if i could call it that serious competition in terms of losing the race Uh, but he's out there with a with a housing policy which is a little bit late. But on the other hand, it looks like he's heading in the right direction. And Karen may have some thoughts on that. Karen?
4: Well, you know, again, the housing is complicated, right? We all know that. If it was easy to fix, it would have been done. And, uh, you know, it's easy to say, well, we're just going to build this missing middle into stable neighborhoods. But but the reality is all the infrastructure for stable neighborhoods was built, assuming it would be a stable neighborhood. And, and so it's great just to say, well, we'll plunk more homes down but you know certainly at Young and Islington we're finding that even in an area that was designated to be intensified it is intensifying and the schools are filled the roads don't work you know the the sidewalks are crowded like it's just it's there is a point in which yeah you, you sort of step back and say okay this is not managed growth and so part of what the frustration is everyone's just talking about new homes building more homes but there is there is a sense that it does need to be managed in a way, it's not just about homes, it's about schools, it's about roads, it's about transit, it's about community centers, it's about all of the supporting infrastructure that is required to manage that growth in population. And and quite frankly, some areas just aren't as well-equipped as others to to manage that growth. And so so it's just, from my perspective, frustrating because, um, you know, and David, I think you live in this area as well, like to see how the growth, and I'm not suggesting it should stop, but all of the ancillary supports and infrastructure that's required to manage the growth don't exist.
1: Yeah. And don't appear to be coming. Now, here's something that I am going to tackle later in the show. But uh, these new COVID rules that the Chief Medical Officer of Health unveiled yesterday, no more isolating for five days. It's kind of loosey-goosey, use your judgment. And the, it, it seems to me that there's a very opposite kind of approach to the city, which has been very cautious and so some people say, great, we don't need the nanny state anymore. And and others are saying, well, it, we're setting up for catastrophe, especially now that, you know, you can move uh, uh, frail elder people into rooms with lots of other beds in nursing homes without staff.
2: Yep. I'm seeing a lot of reaction online of people saying this is a disaster waiting to happen. Um, I'm not even sure how many people were following the five-day rule. Like anyone I know who had contracted covid in the last little while they were doing like the full two weeks they weren't go- going out of their house so they were working from home or whatever um so to kind of sign off on just giving everyone the approval to do whatever they want like epidemiologists are already saying that they're predicting an eighth wave this yeah. fall that could be really bad I mean, what we know of COVID, even with the vaccines, it's a highly contagious virus. So a lot of people are kind of nervous um, and urging maybe the province to use more caution. But we just have to see how it plays out, I suppose.
1: Well, uh, you know, the the first person I sent this to was our HR person here because I was saying, you know, we need our own policy. We cannot rely on them to come up with anything that'll keep us safe. David, how do you feel about it?
3: That's interesting. That's also an admission, I think. Uh, of the, uh, we're now moving away from where we ought to be. Uh, I, we should we should err on the side of caution, uh, as I think we have been. Uh, and I'm a little concerned uh, that the the uh, the provincial MOH or the provincial government is moving us in a way because they think it's popular to do so. Uh, but I think they're taking us away from the cautionary approach that we need for uh, for our own health
1: uh and karen the opposition parties are saying uh that it's it, they're doing this because uh their quote three measly sick days are going to expire okay well you know i guess i have a bit of a different view than the panel on it i mean
4: what what the position we've taken at work is if if you don't feel well stay home um but but we're not we're not testing we're not providing testing kits to individuals anymore testing kits are harder to come by. The reality is there's also viruses that aren't COVID. And so, you know, I, I think that we are entering in this world where, you know, people are gonna, people are getting sick. They might have COVID, they might not. They might have access to a test, they might not. Um, if you're sick, stay home, stay home. But you also might have COVID and not, and not be symptomatic. And then it's, it's a question of how would you know unless you're re- regularly testing and we're not regularly testing anymore.
1: Uh, th- th- and, that's that's your place. But apparently he, he wants uh, teachers and, and school kids to test all the time, which I find baffling. Well, I find that baffling, too. But, you know, I remember last fall when the kids all went back to
4: school and any child with a runny nose had, needed a PCR test before they could go back to class. And, I mean, unfortunately, that's the reality of kids in school. Like, kids get colds and people get sick. And... It's not, to be candid, I don't think it's reasonable to say if you're sick or not feeling well to stay home for 14 days. It's reasonable to say don't come to work if you have a fever, don't come to work if you have symptoms. But at some point, when we have the vaccination rates that we do, it doesn't make sense to keep healthy people at home.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, the the problem I have with this is that, it to me, what it really says is do do whatever you want.
2: You're on your own.
1: You're on your own. Yeah, we kind of are. I mean, and it's kind of how people are living. And
4: in, in my world, I've, so Lauren, like, that's great that your friends isolate for 14 days.
1: Well, I think but they would probably sick. That.
2: You know, I have to make give the caveat. Like, these are people who can work at home, and if you know, I should I should keep that in mind. There are a lot of people who don't have the, um, you know, the ability to stay at home and do their jobs people work in the service industry and hospitality and stuff like my friends are working um you know on computers for they have the option to do that but i understand not everyone can so yeah i just think we need to definitely be a little more cautious just generally because once it spreads like that's there are so many viruses always going around people are getting sick people are getting flus but what we've seen of covid in these variants once it starts spreading it can get out of control really fast so I mean, just if, as long as there's some sort of plan in the future, like what happens if it gets bad again? Are we going to go back into lockdown? Please, let's not. I'd rather wear masks for a little while longer or stay home for five days than have to go back into lockdown mode.
1: Yeah, well, um, it's you know, you said people... Isolating longer. Well, the people that I know that have been sick recently, I mean, it's nice that they say on average it's milder and and isolate for five days, except they were sick.
2: That is a good point, too. Some people got really sick with it for a long time.
1: Okay. I'm looking for something, a positive note to end this on. Lauren, are you going to help us
2: out here? Uh, Sure. I I just filed a story, Blog Teal's Live Now, about Katie Couric, the um, Today Show anchor, just put um, Bell Media on blast for over the Lisa Laflamme scandal. I'm sure. Is that something we talk... Yeah? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it's just so nice to see, like, this big American um, news anchor, very much a contemporary of Lisa Laflamme's, kind of sp- speak out in support and yeah it's cool you you should read her instagram post but she was basically just like these boneheads at ctv blah 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 and and, you know speaking out she's like women should be allowed to age gracefully in all areas of life and such and such that was kind of that was kind of nice to see um i just love women sticking together and championing each other so that was cool not necessarily super exciting or happy but
1: well, yeah, we've actually talked about this a lot and uh you know, if you want to uh have a course in how not to handle a public relations issue, <laughs> I think yeah. this was this was it. Karen. Uh so happy news. I think it's great that Tiff is back and
4: uh you know and the and the X is on and just uh the city's coming back to life again and I think that's all fantastic. And David.
3: Uh, a beautiful season. I, I'm I'm heading for my uh I was getting ready for my walks along the Humber, my walks down through Mm -hmm. Hyde Park, my walk through the valleys of the city, uh, because it's the best time of the year, because it's crisp, it's bright, it's colorful, and it's safe.
1: Okay. And uh, I can tell you, uh, people, just reminding people, the Ashkenaz Festival is on this weekend. Uh, It's uh, all over the place, but largely down near... uh, harbor front and most of the things are free and it's fabulous music and culture so um if you haven't locked in your plans think about doing that as well awesome thanks okay thank thank you all david crombie karen stintz and lauren o'neill and we're going to take bye bye we're going to take a break and uh we'll be back with more
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome uh, back. Well, it is late summer. And do you remember this viral video? Holy Christ. I just swallowed a bee. Holy Christ. I knew that little bugger. Come on. Okay.
3: I'm good. He's down here buzzing around right now.
1: Well, that's the time Premier Ford swallowed, I think it was a wasp, not a bee. And that's usually not a laughing matter. And well, we are in the midst of peak wasp season and it's apparently worse than usual. So have you been fighting off wasps? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 And now let's go to Dr. Gard Otis, Professor Emeritus of Behavioral Ecology and apiculture at the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Guelph. Dr. Otis, thank you so much.
5: Hi, and thanks,
1: Libby. It's great to be here today with you. Great. So uh, is it actually worse than usual, and why is that?
5: I don't think it's worse than usual. (laughs) <laughs> Should we stop the interview now? No,
1: no, no. Well it's it you know what? I, I, I would agree with you. I've been reading that it's worth it worse than usual, but frankly, usually it's bad enough. Yeah,
5: it's always it always peaks around this time of year and I think what happens is people get lulled into the idea early in the season that there isn't much happening and then all of a sudden there are wasps and so it all of a sudden is worse than I ever remember. But um, since nobody's really tracking the numbers in any definitive way, I can't say one way or another if it's worse than other years. But there are wasps out there, and it's time of season that they're around in numbers, and it's good to review what they do and how to stay safe and all those kinds of things.
1: So let's do it. All right. So, uh, first of all, uh, are they basically everywhere, or are there things that people might have in their gardens that make it worse? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, if they
5: have a nest in their garden that they don't know about, that would definitely be worse. Uh, my wife had discovered one a couple of years ago. She was doing some weeding under a bush and didn't realize that she was weeding, pulling weeds out of a yellow jacket nest, basically. Oh my god! And about twenty stings later, she made it into the house. And uh, fortunately, she's not one of those people who has a hypersensitivity to the bee to the wasp venom, so she was fine, but it hurt. Um so, yes, if you have a nest they're all you know that that's the worst and and it can be hard to know if you have a nest until you bump into them or encounter them so it's good to keep your eye open if you see like insects flying in and out of something, and wasps aren't tiny right they're bigger than a housefly, so you would see something that's reasonably large and they aren't real fast, so you 'd see something fairly slow and uh and if you see several of them going in and out of a hole or something, well, then you know you might have a problem that you want to call somebody and get get it taken
1: care of. And what do their nests look like? Are they kind of those, you know, those bee, you know, <laughs> sorry, <I'm> the, <laughs> the question yeah, isn't right very right. well framed. <laughs> what is a, What does a wasp nest look like? Yeah, well, it depends on the wasp.
5: Um, uh-huh. But all of our social wasps that I say social because they have a queen and they have workers like a honeybee would. And um, all of our social wasps that live here in Ontario build nests out essentially out of paper. They chew up wood pulp, and mix it with saliva and they make these lovely little strips of papery kind of material that hardens up. Um, So the smallest social wasps we have are called paper wasps and they just build an open platform. It looks like an open comb hanging horizontally from a under your porch or under an eave or something like that. Um, All the others enclose one or more combs like that in a papery envelope, a, a surface covering. Um, And probably a lot of your listeners will be familiar with the bald-faced hornets that build a great big, almost football-sized thing up in the trees that usually you're unaware is there until the leaves come off the trees and you suddenly realize there was a great big wasp nest right up there above the house or something. Um, And then we have yellow jackets that usually nest either in the ground or in the wall of a building or in the wall of a house. Um, So you don't usually see their combs because they're hidden, but it's the same papery kind of a comb, a horizontal comb, or several of them attached to each other.
1: Okay. Uh, So um, are you okay if you, say, keep some Benadryl handy in case you're stung? Because I know people who've stepped on them. I've stepped on one in the past. Um, uh, We saw the premier swallowing one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was a wasp, too. I
5: heard you say you thought it was a wasp, and I agree with you. Bees don't usually do that, and wasps do, so.
1: Um, But that was the question, if you keep a little Benadryl, is that going to do you, or does it just depend on your own physiology?
5: Yeah, so the the majority of people, probably 95-plus percent of people, will just have a localized reaction if they get stung. And that means that the venom goes in. It's a foreign protein. Your body reacts to it. There's chem- chemicals in the venom that cause pain, so it hurts like a heck, like heck. I'll not swear on the on the radio for you. Um, and then uh, it, it swells up after a period of time, and then you know, it, after a couple of days, it's gone. But some people, just because of the kinds of antibodies their body produces. Um, end up with each sting they get having a more serious reaction. And more serious means you get itching on the body or you get um, difficulty breathing. Um, and that's in a visit to emerge. And that's when you really need to see it. Yeah, that's when you need to see somebody and check it out. And, and then they have ways, uh, believe it or not, people harvest wasp venom medically. I don't, I don't even know how they do this. But um, so, if you go to somebody who's an allergist, they can inject a very tiny amount of venom under the surface of the skin, and then by the reaction, be able to determine how much you re- you uh, react to the venom. And for most people, again, if they are starting to get more serious reactions, they can actually go under undergo venom therapy and get increasing doses of venom uh, injected into them to the point where they can handle a sting or two without any life-threatening responses.
1: Mm, it's probably a bit late in the season for that now. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah
5: there's no time for that this year, yeah.
1: If, um, uh, I think I'm probably like most people, and I want to take advantage of the beautiful weather and uh, eat outside, and that is kind of the worst. So is there a way to keep them off the food if you're having, a, a, you know, a meal outside? Uh, eat in a tent?
5: <laughs> eat inside? Eat in a screened-in porch? No, there really isn't, unfortunately. If, if there, if you're anywhere near a nest, and there probably are, it, you probably are, there's enough nests around that I would say most people are somewhere not that far from a nest. And um, at this time of year, the colonies have gotten large. Uh, Some of the larger social insect wasp colonies will have, by this time of year, 400, 500 colony members in there, all waiting to defend their nest if you were to step on it or, or bang into it. And they're feeding a large number of larvae at this time of year. they switched over to producing next year's generation of queens and the males that will mate with those queens. So their food demands are really high. So they are going like crazy trying to get food. And so Coke cans and drink cans and things like that, they get sugar from because they need carbohydrates to fuel their flight. And to feed their larvae, they need proteins and fats, and they get that from fried chicken and peanut butter and pretty much everything you put out there. Probably potato salad they'd leave alone, but... uh, Coleslaw. They don't want coleslaw. There you go.
1: Okay. Well, um, thank you for that. And uh, we'll have to eat in the screened in porch if we have them. I appreciate your time, Dr. Gard Otis.
5: All right. Well, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. Okay. We are taking another break. When we come back, we will talk to Dr. Fahad Razak, the outgoing, I guess, head of the science advisory table on some of the changes that we heard about yesterday when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Is it a reasonable move now that we're all used to COVID and it looks like it's becoming endemic? Or is the government's removal of the isolation requirement a recipe for disaster as we head into fall and a likely eighth wave? Let's go to Dr. Fahad Razak, the scientific director of Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. And I believe the table is still working until what, next week?
6: Hi, Liz, Hi, good to be back. Yes, uh, we are we are wrapping up our existing work, so our, our table will be coming to an end. Over the course of the month, you'll see kind of final work that we're doing uh, put out there. But yes, our table will cease to exist very shortly. So it's been a pleasure to be on all these times.
1: Well, thank you for coming on. But uh, restrictions and and information seems to be being removed at breakneck pace. Uh, what do you make of the latest from Dr. Moore?
6: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll, I'll say that I'm, we haven't had a science table uh, group meeting since these announcements are made. So what I'm, you know, can I share with you are my personal feelings on it? I think what you're seeing is uh, a move towards treating COVID as any other respiratory virus, uh, similar to what's being done in some other parts of the world uh, as well. You're seeing this sort of push in other countries. And, um, you know, the question, of course, with whenever these changes are made, is is this the right time? And are we appropriately balancing risk and benefit by making these changes? Uh, and my my feeling on it is he, that you know I'm gonna take I'm gonna say this as a someone who's a physician and from on an hospital and looking at the signals in Ontario with uh, with our current August situation showing, for example, that uh, the number of tests that are coming back positive or the wastewater signal that we're anywhere between five to ten times higher than where we were in August 2021, so a year ago, much much lower risk. My personal feeling is that um, it is right now, removing these uh, requirements potentially puts us at, a, at higher risk going into the fall. But, you know, time will tell whether that's the case. The, the balance to what I'm saying is that I don't know how strictly these recommendations were being followed. So the, the, the recommendations before this were that if you are positive, you should be isolating for five days. Um, I should mention that the masking requirements for 10 days have remained unchanged. So it's really the isolation requirement. Now, I don't know practically. We don't have good data to know how many people were doing this. For me, from a risk perspective, I would say keep everything in place just because things look worrying as we head into the fall season. Um, But, uh, you know, the change has been made, so we shall see.
1: Well, my question is, uh, and he's talking about who's going to test anyway, I think the test kits are harder to come by. I've heard that.
6: Yeah, I'd like to see the test kits uh, remain available out there. I've heard this anecdotally. Again, we don't have Great data on this, but I am hearing that they can be harder to secure. But I, you know, you know, again, I'll say this as someone who works in hospitals. So if you look at what we're dealing with here in August, this I've never uh, seen this in my career, which is that you're seeing hospitals struggle across the province with operations, emergency rooms closing, uh, access to imaging tests, for example, being limited because of staffing. Uh, This this does not happen in August. This is typically a recovery period for hospitals, and we do annually have stress kind of fall winter during influenza season even before covid but to me that plus the level of, of virus that's circulating right now uh, puts us at a very high risk going into the fall and then you're going to have these additional factors cold weather and people indoors you know over two million children back in schools and in small rooms together so to me this is the, the combination of factors which could make our fall and winter extremely challenging
1: and and what about um elders who are removed from the hospital and sent to long-term care homes uh in multiple beds is is, is that a setup for another catastrophe?
6: Well, look, our long-term care, you've had a lot of guests on this and you've yeah. asked me about this, our long-term care uh, situation and what happened early in 2020 is an absolute travesty. And um, I think we should be keeping a very, very close eye on our long-term care uh, sector and our family. Uh, many of us have family or friends who are in long-term care. This is our; uh, These are members of our community and are members of our family, and we need to keep a very, very close eye on them this fall because, yes, uh, long-term care will remain a high-risk as long as new variants keep sweeping through, and and they continue to sweep through every three to six months, we've seen a new variant sweep through.
1: Um, Now, the government is just approving a new version of Moderna which targets the Omicron variants. Uh, How much of a difference do you think that's going to make?
6: It'll make a little bit of a difference and it's worth it's worth for people out there if you haven't received your dose to go out now and get that dose when it becomes available. So we should be receiving upwards of 10 million doses. I, I think the latest estimate was up, upwards of 12 million doses in Canada, essentially enough for anyone who wants a vaccine. And um, these new bivalent vaccines will continue to have the the, uh, the protein in them from the original ancestral strain of the virus that came out of uh, Wuhan a couple of Years ago, but they will additionally have a component around Omicron. So, it's not exactly the Omicron version that's circulating now, which is primarily uh, what's called BA five. The, w- the version of this updated vaccine, the bivalent vaccine, has an additional component for BA one, which is what came out earlier this year. But it should still extend our protection in a way that's meaningful. And so, you know, my recommendation would be: if you haven't received a third dose, absolutely no question, go out and get a third dose. And that is millions of people in Ontario still. If you are now eligible for anything beyond a third dose, a fourth dose, or even a fifth dose, if you've been more than six months since you've had uh, your last dose, or if you've had an infection six months ago or longer, now is a great time as these bivalents come out. And, and as we enter the fall season, if, you're starting, if we're starting to see more risk, that can even be as little as three months.
1: Hmm. Uh, now, uh, this is probably the last time I'm going to be talking to you in your capacity as head of the science advisory table. I hope we'll talk again because we cover a lot of health here. Um, so uh, what are we going to be missing in terms of information as of next week as all of this uh, comes down at once?
6: Yeah. First of all, I'll say, Libby, if there's if it, if an opportunity to be on again, it would be my privilege. So all of us are still around. You can reach out to us anytime. Um, in terms of a group, though, we, we did have the ability to push forward consensus documents, whether it's, um, you know, related to safety measures for the public as variants come through, strategies for how vaccines are rolled out, modeling results. And, you know, I'll say this as a clinician, uh, the, the recommendations and guidance from the science table on how to use the complex new medications we after COVID. Really complicated. Often 10, 15, 20 pages of documentation needed to understand them. Um, these medications were coming out fast and furious the last two years and we needed to learn how to use them. A, a trial would come out and the next week we'd be expected to prescribe them to our patients. That do, Those documents from the science table were invaluable, not just in Ontario, but I would say nationally and even internationally we know lots of people were using them. So, There's a lot that has to be filled in here now with the science table um, uh, being closed down by the government and um, so it remains to be seen. I think there are plans that they have. Uh, there haven't been any public announcements yet. But, you know, I sincerely hope success to whatever comes next, because if they succeed, we're healthier. And, you know, that's what we want.
1: OK, thank you so much, Dr. Fahad Razak. Great to be with you. OK, and now let's bring in Dr. Adil Shamji, the Ontario Liberal health care uh, critic. Hi, Dr. Shamji. How are you? Dr. Shamji, hi, hi, um, hi. Sorry about that. Oh, How are you doing today? We're 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 doing fine. So we were just talking to Dr. Fahad Razak, and uh, he was quite measured in mm. his criticism, but he's worried about these uh, guidelines or whatever they were restrictions that are coming off. What's your take?
7: Yeah, certainly. Um, listen emergency rooms right now are overwhelmed. Hospitals are overwhelmed. Long-term care homes are overwhelmed. And I am concerned that the guidance that came out yesterday won't address any of these issues and, frankly, may make all of them worse. Um, I understand why Dr. Razek would be measured in his response. Truthfully, there does need to be an end game to the pandemic. And we have to find a way that we can safely allow society to return to as normal as possible or as close to normal as possible. But the way I see that unfolding is, you know, we have to have a plan that's a little bit like a toolbox that that confers layers of protection. For example, you know, we need testing, but that simply isn't happening in the province. We need to have adequate staffed hospital beds, which we are short on. We need enough healthcare workers, which we are short on. We need more vaccination and we're stalled in the province around 50.7% in terms of people who are boosted. Uh, We need to have antivirals. And even though we have them, the vast majority of the population don't know what they are, uh, whether they're eligible for them, or how to access them. And we need to have, and then you know, finally, we need to have strong reasons, complete public health guidance. And yesterday, for example, when we heard that um, if you are COVID positive, you can return to work as soon as your symptoms are improving, that to me creates a lot of concerns. If I was a teacher in a school, I have to wonder, how would I make sure that um, consistently my students with COVID-19 are wearing their mask 100% of the time so they don't infect anyone else. And how do, how do I track it to make sure that that student who has COVID-19 actually wears their mask for 10 full days? That's a lot to put on a teacher. Um, and we didn't hear, you know, for that guidance to come out, we need to have all of these other parts. We need to have good testing, adequate staffed hospital beds, enough healthcare workers, higher vaccination levels, better access to antivirals, and we needed to we needed to hear a strong plan to protect our education sector. I also worry about our employers who now will have some of their employees returning to work with COVID-19 and they do not have the guidance about how they can keep the rest of their workplace uh, adequately um adequately staffed and adequately protected.
1: Well, so, I, I think that I think that employers uh and I certainly hear I mean we will just have to come up with a policy on our own. Right? And, and
7: that's not the employer's job. You know, public health is supposed to be telling all of us how we should stay safe and keep each other safe. And that is fundamentally missing. You know, uh, the public health doctors have the public health training. You know, the emergency doctors and the clinical physicians have the training. It's not fair to expect teachers to have that training. It's not fair to expect employers to have that training. And, and that advice is fundamentally missing
1: um well he did give kind of uh, guidance uh i mean i guess the worrying thing is that it's it's sort of up to people
7: right and 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 to me that is indeed very worrying especially as we face entering the fall season where we're going to see a proliferation a proliferation of respiratory illnesses um, the summer is typically a period where our hospitals are 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 not as busy. We take a breather and we get caught up on surgeries and and that kind of thing. But we've been running at 100, 120% through the entire summer. So we're going into respiratory season uh, tired. Our healthcare workers are burnt out. And with the, you know, with the measures that have come out, especially without the other protections that, you know, that I was talking about and advocating for, it would not, it will not surprise me that we will likely see more outbreaks more staffing issues in healthcare institutions and outside healthcare institutions, more people admitted with COVID. And so I'm, I'm worried that we're not adequately protecting the people of Ontario.
1: What about the impact of Bill Seven, which uh, passed? Actually, while we were on the air, talking about it, and we're going to have elders going to nursing homes, I'm assuming, and being in rooms with three and four people, and I would, uh, I dare say, some of the same conditions that led to the carnage in the first couple of waves.
7: I mean, I'm I'm deeply concerned about that. Just even from the you know from the ethics and and um you know, just, just out of compassion, I mean, Bill 7 is going to separate families. Uh, it will, it, you know, it will sell, send elderly people to, you know, distant, perhaps culturally inappropriate long-term care homes. Um, and, it, and, I mean, it's written in the legislation that it will do so without patients' consent. Um, uh, or patients or their substitute decision-makers' consent. So, you know, for so many reasons, I, I really worry. And even to use, you know, the uh, Minister Callandra's own estimates – you know, over the next few months, it will only clear maybe 200 or 250 beds. And what he's asking the elderly people of Ontario to do is to pay a very, very, very steep price for a very small number of beds. And, you know, he could instead be focused on addressing the health human resource shortage in repeal Bill 124, which could give us more staff hospital beds. We could focus on having a better health promotion strategy, improving vaccination rates, deploying our antivirals and we're not doing any of that thing any of those things and so to me it's a, it's an extraordinary shame to uh, to impose bill seven upon the seniors of our province who have invested in our province who have built our province um, and have done nothing to deserve this
1: uh, what is your prediction I mean do you think that we are going to have a heavy eighth wave or with vaccination will it be uh quote-unquote mild? what's your take
7: you know uh, it's it's difficult to say and it will be even more difficult to track now that we don't have you know the the transparency and accountability of the ontario science table which was which was so responsive and rapid in producing in producing data and, and providing updates but certainly i worry as we go into the fall season as it gets cooler as people move indoors um as we have, you know, uh, over 49% of our, po- of our province not boosted, um, I certainly worry that we're, that we may well face, uh, you know, a significant, uh, fall wave of COVID-19, as well as a proliferation of other respiratory illnesses like influenza. And so I think we need to be very careful, um, and, and, you know, be careful to get those boosters if we aren't boosted already. Uh, when the bivalent vaccines are out, I, I hope that everyone will consider, uh, will, Will you know? Uh, Will consider getting uh, that vaccination as well, um, and then you know we, you know I, we, I, I would caution against taking the position that COVID nineteen is over, which this government seems uh, intent on um, on promoting.
1: Okay. On that note, let's wrap things up, Doctor Adil Shamji. Thank you so much for being with us.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay. uh, That's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up. And as always, there will be a lot to talk about. So if you couldn't get through or you have something else that you want to talk about, give us a shout tomorrow. That's all the time we have now. You're listening
0: to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.